Welcome to the morebusiness.com podcast, where our goal is to help 250 entrepreneurs become multimillionaires within five years of starting their company. Today, my guest is Ryan Bass. He is the CEO of Carrier, and it is a health technology solution. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Raj. Well, let's describe a little bit about what your company does. Yeah, so essentially we're including patients within the medical device communications. Um, so when a recall, a shortage, any kind of that that impacts a patient, um, actually connecting them to the vendor so that they're not on an island and finding out via Facebook. And one of the challenges of getting customers is really negotiating deals, getting people in the pipeline, and then getting to know. And we talked about this because uh, getting to know is something that and, and no, when I mean N-O, not that K-N-O-W, no. Uh, getting to know is important because uh, if you are constantly uh, being uh, dragged out uh, in terms of negotiations, in terms of potential interest from a client, you may think something's pretty high in your pipeline, that it's a strong deal, and they're really just either trying to get information from you to go to a vendor that they've already uh, had in mind, or they're just not really ready. Ryan, what are some of the telltale signs in some of the negotiations that you've had in securing clients that suggest that someone might actually not be interested and is just being polite to you? Yeah, I think that it's important to notice when any company, you know, with any product or service has uh, a new offering, there is a bell curve, right? You have your early adopters, you have your later adopters, and then most of the people come in the middle. So a lot of people might like your idea. Um, but they may not have, one, the ability to make it actionable and move forward with it. But secondarily, they might have competing projects or other areas in which um, they can't move forward with you now. So, you know, pushing off meetings, being able to, to not have like, you know, a, a two-week timeline turnaround or, or dates set um, are all telltale signs. But it's one of those things where they might come later. So no doesn't mean no forever. It just means no for right now. And and that's an important point because no right now could just mean they need to be nurtured and maybe you want to automate that nurture or you want to just stay in touch. So you said something interesting, canceled meetings. That's a telltale sign. Now, sometimes I'll be forgiving. Somebody cancels a meeting, things come up uh, and then you reschedule. But if they do it more than once, then you're like, oh, are they really serious? Right. So do you have a number in mind? Like if somebody cancels a meeting X number of times, that that's really uh, just a good indicator that ah, they're not really interested. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's really just about being a priority. So if someone's not making us a priority within the sales cycle, then we're really not going to be a priority once we implement. So it's like, unless there's a real good reason why the first one gets canceled, it's one of those things where I actually start to, to knock them down in the priority list on our side, because mm -hmm. we're not only looking for early adopters, we're looking for early adopters who are excited about what we're doing and want to work with us and make a priority. And so those are the ones that we're going to put priority on our list as we pursue other uh, potential clients. Do you have an example of a, of a prospect that was just stringing you along? We had one hospital system. I mean, I won't mention names, but, you know, talked to a few of their director levels and above, and it was something they definitely wanted to do. Um, you know, we're going to be able to do this, that, and the other. We just have this one project and we'll connect again here five months down the road. Then, you know, they basically went to the ghosting, <laughs> you know, we didn't get responses to emails. We didn't get a uh, meeting set up that we were supposed to. So eventually it just came to time where we just sent across and even sent the ultimatum email. Like, is this not a priority for you? We'll just leave you alone. And then they responded, oh no, we do want to do this. And then we wasted another like two and a half, three months until it got to the point of, well, no, actually not right now. So mm -hmm. that whole time and effort that was spent could have been, you know, spent on other prospective clients if they just would have told us no out of the gate. Mm -hmm. And so, so the way you got to know was 
you just sent them a note saying, hey, uh, just checking if this is a priority for you or not. It's okay if it isn't, but we just wanted to, like, how did you phrase that email? Because that's a delicate email to send out. Yeah, and it's like, uh, for me, it's I, I don't want it to be gray area. So it's like, hey, if this isn't a priority for you, then just tell us no. We'd rather not waste your time or our time, and we can always come back later. Uh, obviously the discounts that we're offering and have talked about today won't be existent um, mm -hmm. as we pick up conversations in the future, but oh, let, let's just not waste each other's time. Yeah, that's important uh, because you are spending cycles. You know, you've either got to pay yourself or your sales teams, uh, regardless uh, of the time, you know, the granted people get paid on commission, but at the same time, they want to be focused on the best quality leads. So what are some of the qualification criteria that you look at ahead of time to determine whether a lead would be worth pursuing or not? Yeah, I mean, right now we're really focused in on academic health systems that have, you know, really five to 20 health hospitals within that health system. Um, and so really we found that the academic centers are the more forward thinking when it comes to how do we address patient issues and reduce costs against those patient populations. Whereas uh, some of the non-academic centers are saying, well, we have a solution, even though it doesn't really work. We still say we have a policy on it. So yes, it doesn't really do what we need to, but no one's actually knocking on our door saying that uh, we're going to get fined if we don't spend more money in this area. Right. I mean, that's a that's an important point that you like the underlying theme here is to know what your ideal client is. And you describe that very succinctly. Uh, you know exactly what industry they're in, uh, the general size, the number of branch offices that they have. And I think a lot of times companies get caught up because they they look at a bigger universe as their potential client base. How did you hone in on knowing what your ideal client profile is? And for me, it was really just trial and error. So I didn't have a sales background coming into this. Um, it's something that I've had to kind of learn on the job, but I had that same mindset at the onset, like here, I have a list of a thousand different hospitals and their contacts of their higher, you know, ranking people. Let's start hitting this list one by one. But really all you're doing at that time is you might get somebody to remember your name, but you're really just flooding inboxes that get deleted on emails that people aren't ever really looking at. So instead of wasting your time on sending emails that go straight to junk, it's really like, how do we spend time on real potential clients that could generate revenue for us that we spend more time on them because there's an actual dollar amount that could be attributed to it. And usually when you do that, you try to get as much information about that prospect that you can. So you've got your ideal client profile, but then inside that, there may be multiple people who influence or actually make that final purchasing decision. There's usually the end user, the person that's going to be implementing everything. There's that person's manager who's in charge of broader programs. And then, of course, there's what I call the finance person, which is the one who stroke that check and gets yeah. you that money for your deal. So... So usually inside that ideal client profile, you've got maybe multiple buyer personas uh, and they all have different competing interests. What did you do to identify what your buyer personas are? Yeah, so that's probably the biggest hurdle that we face as a company because if, if there was a way for me to be able to sell to directly one department that would pay for everything and it only impacts them, that makes mm -hmm. the sales process much cleaner and smoother. But with our approach, we're actually basically giving a tool across every department and other IT and regulatory and uh, uh, legal offices. So we really come to the table and open up really Pandora's box in that first communication and everybody comes and gets involved. And then health systems then find like, oh, well, we don't have a real succinct process for this and no one has view to where we actually address this as a process in our system. And then we go through everybody buying in and then getting them on board. Um, it's the best way to do it for the patient, but it does make that sales process a little longer.
When you do that and you have to sell to multiple uh, stakeholders inside an organization, getting to know becomes a bit complex because even inside those organizations, each stakeholder may have competing priorities. And you may have one person that's like, oh, we're all in. And another person, yeah, but I've got to take care of these three things first. And so now to get to know on one of those types of situations, how do you deal with it? How do you reconcile those differences? Yeah. So, I mean, we actually are dealing with one of those right now. So we have um, a pretty large and reputable health system, um, 20 plus hospitals that uh, one of their areas basically says, you know, I've never touched this area. We have a process. It's simple. It's easy. I don't care. And then we have somebody who's involved on the clinical side, on the patient aspect. And they said, yeah, I don't care that you don't care. <laughs> you know, this is what we're doing. So yeah. it's, it's really about like identifying the stakeholders that are going to have the most sway within that organization and really looking to answer their pain point. But really getting to know it with them is like, you no, know, they're going to have to have their internal conversation. They're going to have to see where the pieces fall after, after that. And then you got to be just upfront and frank with them. Like, you know, here's the offer. We're willing to give you these discounts. It lasts for this time period. After that, you can still come back to me, but we'll have to renegotiate the price. You're not going to get it at this to really start putting a timeline on them to make them want to close. Because that was another thing I've learned. I came to health systems and never put that pressure on them. And then all of a sudden it's like, it goes for six, seven, eight months while they're trying to figure out a priority and you're not one, right? As they're trying to align their inner uh, systems. But if you come in and get yourself into a pricing match where the price will double or triple if they don't move on it, then all of a sudden they're willing to work with you and bring you into those conversations and have you be part of that as opposed to being on the outside. I know a lot of uh, companies, especially newer uh, CEOs, sometimes struggle with that, offering a time-sensitive uh, pricing. And um, so I, I guess one fear is that, oh, they'll just say no, and they'll come back later and still want the same discount, even though it was time-sensitive. Uh, I'm sure you've had that happen to you. I've had that happen to me all the time. Um, and so how do you hold your ground to something like that? You know, you want a deal because, you know, when you're talking 20 hospital systems, that's a pretty good customer for you, Mm -hmm. uh, regardless of whether they got the discount or not. So I'm going to guess that they have savvy negotiators on their side and they're coming back to you saying, no, we still want the discount. We just want it a year later. How do you deal with that? I mean, a lot of it comes down to like market traction, right? So if you have no clients and no one signing and you try to raise the price on them, that's not going to work. But in our instance, it's like the offer that we gave them like four months ago um, and we gave to them in writing just recently. So they have 30 days from that. It's like we've had health systems get SaaS agreements that have uh, over three times the price of what we offered to the other system. So at this point, it's like, listen, market is telling us that the price we offered you is way, 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 way below what people are willing to pay. And at this point, you're either going to have to renegotiate this or pay market. Oh, you know, it's not that, you know, you give them a deal, you can't still negotiate with them, Um, but it puts a timeline on the price. So if they really want that price, they're going to have to move quicker. Mm -hmm. Are there times when you've uh, basically said no to somebody and they've kind of come back and said, okay, we're ready now. Or where, uh, you know, we really are interested. Now, you mentioned that one example earlier on. Are there others where someone's just sort of dropped out of the radar, but then came back and become a customer? Yeah, so we have one that we're like in the middle of that. So we uh, connected with them. They really love the product, like it, um, see the value add in it, uh, wanted to do it. And then um, basically put it on a hold for like six months. 
Then we started picking back up. I actually just drove out to their hospital um, last week, met with their uh, director in the supply chain. And then basically he's like, you know, we have one more project. It's going to be done by, you know, November, but it makes sense for them to get that project done first because we get a lot of data from that uh, ERP system. So it's like, we don't want to do double work either, right? We don't want to integrate today. And then they flip to a new ERP in six months. And then we have to work again to get the same data we had um, with the new vendor. So we are going to, you know, pick up again in December, but when we get those kind of like uh, inquiries of, you know, Hey, can we push this off? We just, they're on the back burner, right? We don't even touch them again until we get a notice six months later. It says, hey, follow up with X hospital. You know, uh, you, you know you, you're selling a fairly large system, so it's not a quick sales cycle. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it probably takes months and months of talking, negotiating, and so on. And I know a lot of companies come the end of the year, come Q4, they're going bananas because they're not going to meet their numbers. And so they're trying to do everything under the sun offering discounts they would never have offered before, pushing their sales reps to build pipeline, sales teams thinking, hmm, I'm probably not going to make my quota. I'm going to start looking for a new job and just kind of coast the rest of the year because I'm not hitting my number. I'm not getting my bonus anyway. So here we are in the first half of the year. What kind of things should sales teams be doing right now so that actually hit their numbers toward the end of the year and make sure that they've got sufficient pipeline? And, And what I mean by what should they be doing What what kind of KPIs should they be measuring? What are the other things that are on your dashboard? Yeah, I think that depends on size and then sales cycle that you have. So from our perspective with the hospitals, with uh, no like deployments, you know, it's, it really depends on what stage you're in. So you might have a sales cycle that's a year long if you're unproven or don't have reference sites or anything like that to get the hospital comfortable to move forward with you. After you start getting five, six, seven clients um, and you start to really start to scale, then you're you're going to see those uh, sales cycles go down, but you still have to be looking eight to twelve months in advance in the health systems cycles. So um, you can't really get to October and say, "Hey, quick, we're going to close a couple deals," because the committee approvals are going to take longer than that. Even if you said, "Hey, it's free," it's still not going to be something that they turn around in a month. Um, so it's it's really about today starting to look at not only the revenue cycle, but how many touch points, how many qualified meetings, what do, what qualifies as a qualified meeting, not just a, Hey, give me five minutes of your time, but what are the key stakeholders that need to be in those meetings to then qualify them as part of, you know, the sales cycle. And then how many of those are usually typical for you to close a deal, right? So it's really about being uh, meticulous within what qualifies for different stages in the sales cycle, and then being able to have a good idea of what your today pricing is and what your tomorrow pricing might be and where those revenue numbers hit. You know, you said something interesting, and that is like meeting with the right people. And and I've found that oftentimes when uh, the people who make that final decision are not in those stages of the conversation that they really need to be, uh, that's uh, almost a subtle way that a company is saying no, Mm -hmm. kind of delegating it down, and they're just having you talk to somebody to be polite to you. And, uh, you know, your company might be thinking, oh, yeah, we're making headway, but really you're not because the decision maker is not in the room. What things can you do to get that decision maker into the room? What can you say? What can you send? What do you do to get them in the room? I mean, it's really just about being forward, right? Everybody wants to be coy and play, be nice and, you know, not hurt somebody else's feelings. But the longer you play coy and the longer you play nice, the more of your time, effort and resource you're spending on a no that you shouldn't be. So, you know, from my vantage point, it's always about being just very direct about it. Like, listen, hey, uh, who's the decision maker in this process? And I think that's another thing I've learned within uh, doing the sales stuff. 
at the beginning, I was afraid to, you know, ask because I didn't want someone to tell me no. Then and now it's just like, all right, who's the decision maker? Who's going to sign this contract? So if you guys want to move forward, who's signing? What budgets is it coming out of? And those are kind of taboo things that I was afraid to broach at the beginning. But now if I don't have that or the person I'm talking to doesn't know that information, then we're not going to get a signed contract anytime soon. So it's not about getting conversations. It's about getting revenue. And the only way you get revenue is if you get someone to sign on the dotted line. So you got to have those difficult conversations and be very forward about that. That's a really important point. It's about the revenue, not about making people feel good that they're talking to somebody because those conversations can lead to nowhere. uh, And that's a critical piece of sales. So in terms of other things that are hidden ways that companies say no, uh, oftentimes it's just being polite. So canceling meetings, um, not having the, the right buyers in the room. What are some of the other things that, that ways that people say no, that are not really, uh, that are indicative for, for you? Yeah. I mean, I like what you said where, you know, the bridge to nowhere. I mean, it's really about the bridge to nowhere is worse than the bridge to know. Um, mm-hmm. but, but ultimately like people are going to give you subtle hints if they're non-responsive, if they're, um, you know, they tell you they'll get back to you within a week and they don't, and you have to follow up with them again, you're not a priority. So it's not about getting your feelings hurt that uh, someone hasn't made you a priority. It's just looking for those accounts who will make you a priority because in the end, if someone was interested and then they look over and they see their neighboring health system or a neighboring competitor is now using you and they're promoting, hey, you know, we use this because it gives us this market differentiator, they'll come back, right? And so at that point, they'll come back at a higher price value. So at the end of the day, it works out for you. You just got to go find those early traction adopters to kind of keep moving that revenue pin forward. One of the ways that uh, that uh, accounts, uh, enterprise accounts uh, reps actually penetrate these large accounts is through account-based marketing. So they'll find a specific account and they'll look at their very specific pain points, just like you described, uh, and then the buyers inside there. And they will create material that the marketing department uh, puts together uh, that then works with the sales department collectively to actually work and penetrate that account. So they're providing types of information. You know, the CEO is going to need different types of stuff. CFO is going to need, well, what are the ROIs? The CEO might be looking for trend information. So what do you do in terms of marketing to, uh, to get deeper into an account? Because it can't just be the salesperson constantly pounding on people. That doesn't always work for these really large accounts. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing you can do is like, it's the old adage that your uh, net worth is your network, right? So first you want to try to exhaust any kind of personal connections or people that you might have to penetrate some of those accounts. Um, But then it's, you know, following up and really personalizing things to the needs of that client, not only for marketing, but nobody likes to make a new slideshow every single time. But if there are ROIs that you could predictively run and generate for a specific organization, that's not a one size fits all, but it takes you 20 minutes to go and get the predictive analytics of what this could mean for you as a revenue generation standpoint. Like those are all things that people want to hear and see. They, they wouldn't want to hear, we're in the, we're in the age of uh, instant satisfaction and, and uh, instant gratification, right? So instead of saying, hey, you could save X amount times X over X where someone has to do math in their head, you just say, hey, you could save this number to this number. And those people are going to remember the range as opposed to the formula that went into the back end to get there. And for me, I'm like regulatory background, government. I want to show you where everything is, but people don't care about that, right? They want, they want to trust you as the expert 
So you tell me what this is. And if I don't think that's believable, I might ask you and you need to have it defendable so that I can say, hey, this is how we got there. Um, but we really got to really spoon feed people and say, here are the bullet points. Keep it very simple. Here's the ROI. Here's the value add. And then keep it short and sweet. Ryan, you said the magic word. and I think it's believable mm -hmm. because if. Uh, by the way, one of the best uh, techniques I've found to work is some sort of ROI calculator. But I, I, I see so many ROI, ROI calculators that just look like complete junk. I'm like, yeah, I don't know where they pulled this number out of. It doesn't make any sense. They're just trying to get me to talk to them. I'm done with it. And so that's obviously the wrong way to do an ROI calculator. What are some of the ways that you can present ROI so that someone does get to yes? I mean, for us, uh, we do it. We pull from, uh, you know, published studies. We pull from uh, data that's publicly available from the health system. So uh, 21st Century Cures Act requires hospitals to have their, their revenue information on their uh, negotiated rates available. So we just go and do a little bit of homework and say, these are your numbers, right? Like these are, the, this is the amount that you charge per payer. Here's the amount that the similar size hospital has in these types of surgeries. And this simple math equation gives us X. And so once you start doing that and the hospital knows, yeah, it's a reasonable number. They may do more, they may do less, but then you give it a median and saying like, this is the middle number the mean, this is the average of, you know, what it could be. And it could be give or take anymore, but you obviously want that number to be as big as possible, right? Cause yeah. you really want to stoke yeah. that fire. I think that defensible element when you're using something that's a publicly available study, something that they could Google that's not you mm -hmm. because, you know, they're going to like, they won't trust you, right? If it's yeah. something just produced by you. There's one exception to this. I'll share a story. One of my companies provided data about uh, um, the U.S. population and uh, we sold our data to nonprofits, uh, universities, other organizations that were looking to do fundraising. And so we would collect all this data, do a lot of artificial intelligence on it to do predictive analysis on what people's estimated net worth was. And it would, we'd use public records and so on. So we actually create, I created this thing called a market potential report. And I did one for every city. So for example, Washington, DC, here's uh, not a list of people that are worth over $5 billion estimated. It would be something like, here's the number of people that own more than one home. That's uh, one home that's worth over a million dollars. And then other homes that are worth say under half a million. Now what that tells you instantly is like, oh, these people might be uh, renters. They might, you know, landlords, they might rent out. Uh, whereas if you've got somebody who owns three homes over a million dollars, they probably got vacation properties. So little things like that would be signals. So we'd create this market potential report. And I remember handing two reports to my sales team. We did one for New York City and one for Los Angeles. And, you know, it had like, oh, average number of kids and so on. And it showed people in visuals, great illustrations, 30 pages long uh, with what I call the thud effect. The thud effect to what I say is like you had a big document. I'll just take like a sheet of paper. This, if you dropped on your desk, it would go thud. So when you've got something big like that and you send it FedEx to a CEO and it's a trends report about the potential, they pay attention to that stuff. And suddenly you can get meetings and you get to yes a lot faster. Uh, and if they're not interested in something like that, which was the core of what we provided, we would know we'd be able to get to know faster. So do you have recommendations or do, maybe you could share some of the, the, the marketing material that your team provides in addition to the third party studies 
Uh, do you have stuff that you produce on your own? Um, or right now, is your company at the stage where you're more relying on some of these third-party studies? So we have a couple different things in works. We have like on our side, a lot of people want morsels. So how do I get something quick and easy, giving the bullet points for the people that are working in the hospital? Obviously that increases on background, more information as you get higher up the chain. So it's about knowing who that target demographic is. Um, I'm sure if you sent the thud effect to an analyst, <laughs> they might send that to their manager and their manager might send it up the chain again. And, you know, mm -hmm. until it gets to somewhere that's really actionable with it. Um, and then we have other health systems that we're working with right now where part of that, the relationship of them being an early adopter and getting a discount is they're going to do ROI reports with us. So we're going to, we have our like defensible area of where we know we can add ROI. We'll look at them. We'll have a start date, look 12 months in the past, do a re research and in investigation into those populations, then say from today forward, now what's X to Y within the same population on revenue generation? Okay, we're generating an additional $200,000 on this client per hospital per year. And the cost of us is you know, a fraction of that. So it gives hospitals great incentive to come in and use our system, which also gives us the ability to continue raising that price because we have then real dollars and cents that we're being able to give an ROI again. Um, so I think the stage and sale versus the individual that you're selling to in that process depends on how minimal versus how much they actually want to see. And uh, it looks like once you've got that data, you've got case studies that you can have uh, to share with people. Uh, and I always find that that's really valuable because uh, what, what I found is people look for proof that you've done something good for someone like them. Yeah. And so case studies is a great way to do it. Uh, could you talk for a minute about social? Because uh, a lot of times people are on LinkedIn looking at what other people are talking about, trends, reports, things like that. Uh, and they're looking for social proof of people like them, their peers, uh, that using a tool like yours is actually something worthwhile. So uh, what kind of things would you recommend or what are you doing on social? So, I mean, I think, it, again, it's stages for that. So where we're at today, it's really about just growing a page, growing a foundation of people who follow the page and continuing to kind of get that social validation from people that if they go out and search you on, they see your website, they look and find you on LinkedIn, you have, you know, a number of followers who are following the page, but really you're cultivating that for future use. Um, you know, and at, out of the gate, it's really not about like, especially for LinkedIn, no one can see who actually follows the page. Right. So you, it doesn't matter if it's your, your mom and your dad, or if it's a, a CEO of a hospital, um, the number is the number. And that's what validates, not who actually follows it. Um, and then once you continue to grow that and you have a, a reasonable number, you'll be able to attract more people in the field that you're looking for. And then once you kind of get that, then you have a basis of a platform to start sharing out some of those client success stories. So we've had a strategy with, uh, you know, social media, uh, well, LinkedIn is probably going to be the best for us being B2B. Let's focus on LinkedIn. Let's grow the followers on that page. And then as we convert these, these, uh, initial contracts in, they have a requirement to do joint releases with us and other things within the contracting that then we can post, they can share from there. It will get eyeballs to it. We already have, um, you know, 3,300 people that follow the page on LinkedIn, continuing to try to grow that number, but then that should start to snowball. And then the more clicks, looks, views, shares, whatever that can go out, but at least starting to grow that basis of people to get the outside perception. Um, but then at the same time, having that actionable 
group that once you're ready to go, you're not starting a page when you have a lot of uh, information to share and three followers, right? That's right. Yeah. And so I guess in, in, in the marketing world, people call that air cover and you're providing air cover for your t sales team so that they're not calling totally cold, even though it may be a cold call. People may have heard about you on social. Maybe they, they've uh, maybe a, a, a trade publication has picked up a story about you or something like that. And so all that can be really valuable uh, to help you get to yes a lot faster. Ryan, some last minute tips. Uh, I know, uh, you know, we all do a lot of reading. Give me some books that you read, uh, some of your favorite books on negotiations. Oh, I mean, for me, I've, I spend a lot of time just focusing on the healthcare stuff. So not really on the negotiations, being completely honest. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, there are some books that I like to read on the patient safety aspect, whether it's like, you know, Peter Protovost or whomever, but uh, a lot of my reading also goes into regulatory compliance. So stuff to yeah, put you to sleep, yeah. whether it's uh, code of federal regulations or uh, the federal registrar. So um, not really the, the mainstream reading that a lot of people will be looking for. <laughs> but all that stuff's pretty important to sell the product that you've got, right? To keep yeah. your clients educated and, uh, and informed. Thank you very much, Ryan. I appreciate our conversation about how to get to know faster so that you can get to yes faster. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me.